Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. I like to say that most Christians think they should read the Bible. They might even want to read the Bible. They just don't know how. In this season that we're calling Living Water, we're going to be using the lens of water to look at some old stories in a new way and find some some new friends and also a new relevance to stories that we might have grown up with. Last time we learned that the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth, and as a result, storms come in quick and rattle around like a bowl. And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus stills a storm from a boat saving his friends and proving again that he is the master, even over storms. But there are more storms than just weather. And one chapter later, Jesus confronts a storm even more scary than the first. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, I'll read it. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. You know, in our last episode, we learned that the Sea of Galilee is hardly a sea. It's a lake, and it's only seven miles across at its widest point, 11 miles long, which means you can always see to the other side. And always pay attention in stories when Jesus travels to the other side, because the other side of the lake means danger for them. Greek-speaking Gentile people live on the other side. And not only were they hostile, the Jewish people believed they were unclean. As a result, they avoided blending with their neighbors as much as they could. The prophets had two sermons, really. Justice, which is right living, and holiness, which is right belief. And if you live like your neighbors, then you'll take on their ethics. So they didn't want to do that. But blending in their world was inevitable, especially in the Galilee, where lots of Gentile people live up next to their Hebrew neighbors. And one of these blends was a belief in demonic possession, They would ascribe all manner of maladies and and mysteries, if you will, to demons or demonic possession. And I want to take just a second here and talk about a principle of the Bible that we need to remember. It's called the principle of specificity. Now, before I tell you that, I need to tell you something funny that happened to me early in my career. I was right out of seminary, and I was left in the office on Fridays, which was really dangerous because I knew nothing. My shirts were inky black. I had no experience. The only thing I had in my resume was a dynamic youth group. And so I'm sitting in my office all by myself, and someone walks in the street off of Main Street, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and she says, excuse me, uh, Father, could you perform an exorcism? Yeah, right, an exorcism, right? I thought, oh my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I just got a seminary. I looked at her and I said, and I'll quote, I'll give it a whirl. So we go into the chapel and we light a candle and I get out a prayer book and look for, I guess, an appropriate exorcism prayer. I got to tell you, they're hard to find. And I'm mumbling on and I've got my hand raised and think I'm doing a pretty good job. And she looks up at me and she says, excuse me, Father, I'm sorry. Is this a Catholic church? Well, I told her no. But if this exorcism didn't take, she was welcome to go to the church up the street. And that was my only experience of exorcism. I'll use the example of the Exodus here, for this, and this will make my point. If you notice, if you read the book of Exodus, God performs through Moses and Aaron all sorts of wonders. Uh, snakes become sticks. Uh, the Nile becomes uh, blood. Uh, there are all sorts of, of plagues that are visited upon the Egyptians. But God didn't do that anywhere else. God doesn't do that sort of thing 
in in the wilderness. He doesn't do that sort of thing in the promised land because God doesn't need to. God takes on Pharaoh's false gods, and they lived in a world of magic. So God would take on their false gods, if you will, in this world of magic in a way that the Egyptians would understand through magic that they could see snakes into sticks. He doesn't do it anywhere else. Well, the same thing happens in Mark chapter 5 and elsewhere in the Gospels. They believed in demonic possession, and they would ascribe it to all sorts of illnesses or mental disorders or any sort of bad misfortune. So God acts in a way that they can see. There are frequent exorcisms in the gospel where they might not be in another part of the Bible. I say this to you because I don't want you to think that that if you don't see it in the, exactly the same way that they saw it, then that the Bible must not be true. People might say, well, I haven't, I haven't seen a snake turn into a stick, so the story must not be real. Um, God knows how to reach us in our world. And I'll be honest, the devil knows how to reach us too. I like to say it this way around here. If I were to perform an exorcism in the middle of Main Street in in the village next to our church, well, gosh, St. Luke's would be packed. People, you couldn't stir people with a stick, right? People would come to church all the time. The devil knows this. So the devil wants to attack us in a different way. He wants to kill us slow with depression or anxiety or low expectations or crushing debt or keeping up with the Joneses, or anything else that makes us sick and makes us sad. So we have to tackle the devil in our way, and that's the principle of specificity. But in Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man with his own storms in his own environment, and I believe it's a story for us today. Let's read this story together. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read until verse 13. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he'd stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him even more, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out into the country. Now there was on the hillside a great herd of swine that was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned into the sea. Luke's Gospel's version of the story says that he was a man from the city, and there is a city high atop uh, the ridge on the eastern side of the lake, just above these tombs, so that the Sermon on the Mount was really a sermon on the high bank of the lake. Jesus preaching that sermon would say that a city on a hill can't be hid. He was actually looking at this city, plastered white, this Greek city, plastered white on the ridge uh, with the late afternoon sun shining upon it. The city was a place called Hippos, a Greek-speaking independent trading post and one of the cities of the Decapolis. And just at the base of the hill upon which the city sits are caves that were used as tombs. 
Now, I need to say something about burial in the world of Jesus, and especially burial in the Galilee. Any cave can be a tomb. It's a very dry place with a very porous rock, and caves are everywhere, and caves would be used for burial. So what they would do is they would simply uh, put your body into a cave and go away for a year. Now, before the exile uh, to Babylon, they would simply come back and sweep all the bones together into a, a burial shaft in the middle, which is what it means to be gathered into your ancestors. After the exile, and at the time of Jesus, they would put your bones in a box called an ossuary, and you can see those all over Jerusalem today. So at the base of the mountain upon which the city sits were the tombs of the city, and this is where the man lived. You know, you can also see in the, in the Hebrew scriptures especially, but also in the world of Jesus, contamination by a body was a big, big way to become unclean. They all tried to keep themselves and remember the two sermons of the prophets, right? Justice and personal holiness. And holiness would mean remaining clean. They would all try to avoid a dead body as much as possible. That's the whole drama of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, two, two preachers on the way back from Jerusalem thought he was dead. They couldn't touch him. Well, the same thing would happen here. Not only, not only was the man uh, scary acting, not only was he living among the tombs and howling and bruising himself with stones, but also he could hurt them, not only physically, but also contaminate them. You know, the reason for this, if you go back, and there's a very good thesis about this, the reason for this, this avoidance, if you will, of dead things was an avoidance of doing what the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians always did with dead stuff, which was to think way too much about the afterlife and to worship dead bodies as continuing on with embalming and all the all the things that we know about Egyptology. They thought more about death than they did about life. And so the Hebrew scriptures wanted God's people to be different in, in from, from the world around them. For this reason, they were just reticent about dead things and they simply walked away. Well, he didn't. He lived there. And so the question is, who was he and what was the deal? A clue can be found in the city high atop the hill. Roman legionnaires. Roman legionnaires are sort of everywhere in the world of Jesus because, quite frankly, Rome was everywhere in the world of Jesus. But think about the stories that we brush up against that we know. We've got the centurion slave who was healed. We've got the Gentile centurion who sent servants to Peter. We've even got the centurion who observed Jesus' death on the cross and says, surely this man is the Son of God. What we might know is the centurions also take up a big space in Paul's letters. The city of Philippi, to which the, the letter to the Philippians is written, uh, it was full of those soldiers. Philippians is such a hopeful and happy letter that we tend to forget that it was written in a hard place. Paul started a church there around the year 51, just a few years after Jesus' resurrection. And, and they would say things that would enrage these retired centurions so much of these retired legionnaires uh, so much that they would all get beat up and thrown into jail. We say churchy things all the time like grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say that in his letter. But grace and peace were gifts of the emperor, gifts of Caesar, uh, not of God. And so these retired soldiers didn't understand. It was hard to be a Christian in Philippi full of those soldiers. And yet Paul would write them, rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I could say rejoice. And so there were soldiers in the walls of Hippos. Within the city walls, there were barracks for retired Roman legionnaires acting as security guards for this independent city. And they were the perfect guards, really. 
a Roman legionnaire would serve a 25-year term in the most effective fighting force in the world. It was no stretch to say that they were more like killing machines, trained uh, to fight and to kill. Within a lovely park that you can visit today, which actually contains these same tombs where Jesus performed the miracle, I have a, a park ranger friend named Nassim who has a theory. He believes that the tortured man tortured in his mind with a thousand demons in his head, howling and bruising himself and living amongst the tombs, was a retired Roman soldier, one of those soldiers, out of his mind with PTSD. The demon's name was Legion, after all. And before we continue with the story, it's important to note and to contrast the difference between the two shores of the lake. On the Hebrew side of the lake, there are no pigs. That's how you know who lived there. Archaeologically speaking, if there are no pigs, then that means there are Jewish people around. I'll say a word about kosher meat. An animal must both chew its cud and have cloven hooves, which simply means that it was safe food. Uh, A cow, for instance, would have safer meat to eat than, than pork, and so that's why they didn't eat pork. They avoided it. Now, on the Hebrew side of the lake, also Jesus is a rock star. He can't go anywhere with the crowds following him. On the Gentile side of the lake, No one knows who he is. And now Jesus has destroyed the communal swine herd and cost someone a bunch of money and they want him gone. Now we can be ready for the rest of the story. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. And those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with them. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This brings me to more contrast. On the Hebrew side of the lake, Jesus heals and says, don't tell anyone. I think the reason for this is is because he knew that he would be misused. People living in the Galilee, the Hebrew people living in the Galilee, were looking for a general to kick the dreaded Romans out of Judea. But Jesus didn't need to be used that way. Can you imagine, right, a general that could feed 5,000 people with just a few uh, bread and fish, or someone who could raise the dead, or someone who could exercise demons? No, Jesus didn't want anyone knowing what he was actually able to do. But on the Gentile side, it's different. The man begs to be a disciple. He begs to follow, but Jesus says, go. Go and tell your neighbors and your friends what God has done for you. The gospel is no threat here. So the man becomes a disciple, much like we can become disciples. He becomes a disciple in his own world, and his own environment. And he goes home healed, and he tells And the story comes with a bit of a postscript. After more adventures uh, following Mark chapter 5, Jesus returns to the eastern shore of the lake in Mark chapter 8. And there we're told that he fed 4,000 people. There are two feeding stories in Mark's gospel. 5,000 people in the Galilee near Capernaum and 4,000 people on this Gentile side of the lake. Pay close attention here. In Mark chapter 5, they want him gone. He only has one follower, a man who lived in the tombs. In Mark chapter 8, he has 4,000 people begging for more. That soldier could sell. So this leaves us with questions. 
One, how has God healed you? And two, what keeps us from telling the world? Hey everybody, this is Corey Jones. I hope you'll have a chance to join us for our four o'clock service over in Crestline Park. A few weeks ago, we had the pet blessing and it was so great because we were able to meet outside. Everybody brought their dogs. We were able to pray with their families and it was a wonderful time for us over there at our four o'clock service. Now, weather permitting, we hope to continue worshiping outside at the four o'clock service. So bring a chair, bring your friend, bring your dog with you and come worship with us at St. Luke's in Crestline Park at four o'clock on Sunday evenings. See you there.